0: My guest this episode is William Herlong. Enjoy the conversation. So um, one thing that I like to start with, William, is if you think about the different industries that that we represent, you're one of very few lawyers um, in the class. And so um, I'm curious to to hear from you on how you see, um, from your vantage point, things that are going on in the field of law that are... Relevant and interesting for the th- that the rest of us should know about that probably we don't.
1: Well, um you know, I've thought actually off and on, and I and I meant to do it, and it looks like I'm gonna I'm gonna run out of runway. I'm not gonna be able to do it. But I, I've thought for a long time about one of the weekends having a you know a, a short lunch and learn session with everybody, sort of just sitting there and and talking to them for thirty or forty five minutes, sort of just about the practice of law in America. And because I don't know anything about all the other places, but, you know, things that uh, business people like all of my colleagues in this class might be well advised, might like to know. um, They might be useful to know. I mean, you're not going to. You're not going to. be able to avoid dealing with lawyers. You know, you're going to have to in the course of your career. You probably already had to do it many times already in your career. But there, you know, there may be a certain degree of sophistication you can bring to bear. And frankly, if there's one thing I would like to see people bring to bear in dealing with lawyers, it's not. And I don't want to, I don't know quite how to say this, but I think people are often sort of intimidated by the law and lawyers. And I, and I guess I've seen it most, I've seen it most explicitly in my career in, and this will surprise you, but in the context of developing and drafting contracts, hmm. people often think business people often think they'll, you know, they'll give the deal points or something like that to the lawyer and something will come back and they won't read it really closely, or they'll They won't really understand what the lawyer has written, and then you'll have a contract. And um, the fact is the contract really doesn't bear close connection to the reality of what the deal is supposed to be. And so one of the things I've always really insisted on are my clients, and I would like to suggest that all of my colleagues in this class do the same thing with their lawyers, The client needs to absolutely understand the contract. And the lawyer, if he's a good lawyer, will insist that the client read it really, really closely and make sure that every darn word is meaningful and that the the deal points such as they are are exactly replicated in the contract. There is no contract in the world that somebody like yourself, or frankly, anybody in our class shouldn't be able to read and understand. And if a lawyer delivers a contract that doesn't meet that test, then it's not a good contract. It's that simple. So I think that I've gone off on a tangent in response to your question, but that's the one thing that I've sort of thought about as far as the practice of law, a number of things. But that's one one point that I really would like to make with the class.
0: Hmm. Um, As you've seen practice evolve over time, what has been, what's been different and what's been consistent?
1: Well, one thing that's, that really has changed is there there are a great many, fe- I said that backwards, there are not nearly as many uh, trials today as there were when I started. Uh, just to give you an example, and I don't know current numbers, but here in Greenville, South Carolina, where I am, it's a, you know, it's a pretty good sized area. It's nothing like Atlanta or, you know, New York Chicago, Los Angeles. So it's, you know, it's a small second or third tier city. The area is maybe about five or 600,000. It's close to a million, depending on how far out you draw the lines. But the court system, uh, when I was a young lawyer here, there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trials every year. And then as recently as um, I think I, when I heard these numbers, they were it was like maybe 2006 or seven. There literally had only been 50 trials that year. And so the number of trials has declined tremendously. And the the reason for it is that there's a great deal of uh, mediation and arbitration or what we call alternative dispute resolution procedures, which are generally good. I I, I don't have an objection to them. Uh, and I participated in a lot of them in fact, I'm a mediator myself. I haven't mediated anything lately, but I've gone through that training and I've done some cases over the years I've done a great many more as an attorney for one of the part one of the parties but the 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 sad thing about it, and I wouldn't really say it's sad, but from the perspective of somebody who who very much um, who is very comfortable trying a case in front of a jury, there just aren't that many of them anymore and so when I look around. I'm, you know, I'm 61 years old, and I've probably tried about 100 cases in my career, and that's a really big number. And I don't know how anybody today, starting out as a lawyer, would get numbers even remotely like that. Um, perhaps if you're in the uh, district attorney's office trying criminal cases, but even those, so many of those plead guilty, so there really aren't that many trials in a prosecutor's office anymore. So that's one thing that's changed really dramatically. Within the context of a law firm, I think there's been a lot of change in that the practice of law has become much more businesslike, and by that, and I don't really mean that in a good way. Um, law historically, well, when I say historically, I mean you know, mean thirty, forty, sixty years. Was uh, very much thought of as a profession, and lawyers, you know, kind of tried to think that they rose above uh, business in a, in a straight, at least it's applied to their own practices. But nowadays you have a great many law firms where the lawyers are, they're not only on the clock with the client, they're on the clock with their own law firm. So their own law firm is cracking the whip at them. You know, you need to bill more hours. You need to do more work. You need to get more clients. And, and so the measures of productivity within the law firm have become for a great many firms have become very, very, aggressive and, uh, hard to live with. So it's made the practice of law. Well, it's made it more remunerative. People that can deal with it and do it well, uh, can make a great deal more money than in the old days, but it's also made the practice of law a great deal more, uh, mercenary, I guess, for lack of a better word. I'm sure there are plenty of other changes that I that I can't think of, but you know the law profession has evolved just like everything else in society.
0: Hmm. And and so I guess going back to uh, e- either the trend of fewer cases being tried or um, the more mercenary nature of legal practice, in both instances, how is that relevant to the way society shapes or evolves?
1: Well, I think you can. You can you can certainly well the the two things are kind of related to each other in a way. the the latter Let me talk about the latter thing first. the The more mercenary practice of law, it's in a way I think I think society to some extent is sort of getting more efficient all around. You know, people don't want any dead time. They don't want to. Every moment has to be busy with this or that. And so, in the practice of law, you you end up uh, with every, you end up with um lawyers being monitored by their own law firms, you know, how many hours they bill a week, and then every lawyer's billings in a given week are sent around to the whole law firm. There's a list of how many people billed how many hours last week, and then how many people collected how much money last week. So it's just a, a huge push. <laughs> I don't know, it's like it's like Moore's law is applied to the practice of law it's a huge push to get rid of dead time or dead wood or unproductive lawyers and by productive we're not meaning uh, dispensing justice we're mean we mean bringing in money so it it, it the law practice is you know it's it's just truly more mercenary than it was now there've always been lawyers you know who press those points as much as possible um so that part's not shocking, but the, the magnitude of it is is just, is I think, uh, a lot greater than it was when I was young.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, my, own, my own career is actually kind of a, an example of it in that when I started out of law school, I started with a big law firm in Washington, D.C., and of course, we had to bill hours. That's what lawyers do if you're on the defense side. Um, you have to bill hours. It's the only way you can get paid. Uh, but there was not a, an intense monitoring of each lawyer's hours. It wasn't sent around to the whole firm. You know, there wasn't somebody on your back constantly. And then I left that uh, for a small firm in South Carolina. And the firm in South Carolina was very, uh, it was really un- not unique, but uh, certainly unique around here in that it had a model where the lawyers certainly billed hours, but nobody had any idea. In fact, nobody was allowed to know how many hours anybody else had built or even how often they had gotten paid, you know, whether their clients were even paying the bills. And it's obviously was not a very, in many respects, it was not a very efficiently run law firm, but that was a choice by the firm. That's the environment they wanted to create and the environment all those lawyers wanted to work in. And the only way they managed to get away with it is that they really didn't hire anybody who wasn't a workaholic to start with. Huh. And and it was a relatively small firm, about 20 or so lawyers at the time I was there. And then and then I, I left that firm after about 10 years and I was in business for a couple of years. And then I went back to another law firm, a much bigger firm, which where, again, you know, it was very everything was monitored and your hours, unlike the prior big firm I'd been with, with the second big firm. Uh, your hours were literally on a on a report that went went around to all the partners every single week so there was just a constant pressure on that and then and then of course in 2004 i went out on my own and when you're on your own you know you're the only one monitoring what you do <laughs> i
0: had,
1: and, that, and and how did, how did that feel like well that was the worst boss i've ever had <laughs> Well, it's, it's, uh, it's both good and bad. I mean, being on, when I went out on my own and for the first couple of years, I wasn't entirely on my own. I was with a good friend and we sort of supported each other, but we didn't share income. Uh, we shared some expenses. So the thing about being on your own, you know, it's sort of a kind of a consulting business in that you, you eat what you kill. It's a hundred percent. And if you're successful, you you're successful. If you're not, you are not. So there's no diversification. You might say, as in a big law firm, one year a lawyer is busy next year he might not be, but his personal income is, uh, you know, it's sort of insulated a little bit uh, by virtue of being part of the whole firm where those those ups and downs are mitigated uh, just by the, the numbers of everybody there. When you're on your own, you know, it's really, really wonderful if you bring in a big verdict or, a, you know, a big uh, check and, and, and uh, you know, it's just you but it's not so wonderful when nothing is coming in the door. So.
0: Yeah. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but um what inspired you to become a lawyer when when you did?
1: Well, you know, it's it's a it, it's probably going to sound like a stupid story, but the, the funny thing is I always thought I was going to going to become a doctor, a physician. And I was actually uh went to the University of Virginia. University of Virginia and i actually uh, was a science guy you know i actually studied biochemistry and uh went all the way through and i was very into computers and when i the third year let's see my fourth year um i got so fed up with biochemistry i just got it was just the most boring subject in the world and what was what was so ironic is i didn't intend to become a chemistry and biochemistry major i intended to focus on uh, um english i was going to be an english major and um and you know just take the necessary core courses and then go to med school that way which incidentally is what my daughter did and she hung in there with it whereas i decided i wanted to be able to get a phd and do research and so i went you know the hardcore chemistry route and just got fed up with it just bored to tears ultimately too late to change out and so then literally the night before (laughs) this is ridiculous but the night before uh the med school application was due in the fall of my senior year. Um, I just said, to heck with this. I'm not doing this. Uh, and, I, and I said, well, I'm just, I'm just I'm going to kick it off for a year. You know, just not apply, do something else for a year. And then after I made that decision, it took me three or four weeks. And I sort of realized that I, I just didn't want to go to med school at all. And so then I was kind of like, well, what am I going to do? And I thought about it. I very nearly went to graduate school in computer science because I was very much into computers at the time and I well, sort of still am. And, but I ended up not doing that. And, and of course, I had been dating my wife, Joan, my girlfriend then. I literally met Joan on the second day of school, the first year at UVA. <laughs> and we dated all the way through. And when you're in that position, you know, it's fourth year it's, uh, you're either going to get married or you're going to break up. There's two options. And that's a, you know, that's a tough process. Cause I, uh, I was also thinking very hard about going into the Peace Corps and doing all these things. And I really tried hard to screw everything up with Joan. I mean, I really tried hard, <laughs> uh, but I, I just barely didn't succeed. And so we, uh, <laughs> I, I finally figured out what was important. And, and I, I say that in jest, but I'm actually 100% serious about that. I was rather dense for a long time, but I finally figured it out. And then uh, sort of a preliminary part of that was uh, deciding not to do the Peace Corps and, and so forth. And then Joan had gone to Atlanta, where she was one of the first uh, writers for CNN. That was right when CNN got started. And I went to Atlanta and just found a, a, a job, just whatever I could find. Um, and we had about three or four months. She had to move back to Chicago in I think uh December or so. So we had three or four months where we were there together and we got engaged and, you know, that was pretty wonderful at that time and Um, And I decided during that time period to go to law school and I was going to go to, I was either going to Northwestern or I wasn't going at all because she was going back to Chicago or I could have gone to the University of Chicago. She was going back to Chicago to work at Leo Burnett in advertising. So I was going to Chicago one way or another. And fortunately, Northwestern decided to let me in. And that's how I ended up at law school. And law school was good. I, you know, I worked myself, I worked so hard in law school, but it really clicked with my way of thinking uh, I had always been accused of being sort of hyper analytical in my way. I think, and, and whatever it is, I don't know, but it, it worked for law school. Um, cause, and I really, I really enjoyed the heck out of it. Although I worked, you know, like worked like crazy, but I enjoyed the heck out of it. This, particularly the first year after that, it's kind of boring, That's, but the first year was just, a rough. that sounds really
0: fun. Um, as, as you look back either from a career perspective or life perspective, what do you think of as your favorite mistake that the best mistake you made that set you up for success um for the rest of your career or you know in retrospect it looks like that was that was a really good mistake to have made <laughs>
1: Well, it's hard to answer that because I you know when I I don't know that I would characterize anything like that as a mistake. Um, I mean, was it a mistake not to go into the peace Corps? It absolutely was not a mistake. If I had gone into the Peace Corps, I almost certainly wouldn't have married Joan. if I hadn't married Joan, you know I wouldn't have had the four incredible kids that I have, and you know wouldn't have probably ended up back in Greenville. Was that a mistake? No, that wasn't a mistake. Let me think. I don't know. I've made plenty of mistakes, uh, but I guess with the perspective of where I am now, they don't really look like mistakes. Now they look like, you know, thank goodness it worked out that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Uh, I guess another question that I was thinking about is, as you've as you've gone through different periods in life. What have you thought of as guiding principles that keep you grounded?
1: Well, the guiding principle for me—I I don't want to sound trite about it—but um, it's—it's—it's it's always really in, in every context I can think of. It's always been sort of a hardcore commitment to being honest. And to being really serious about integrity, and that's why i I think you and I talked about my race for the political race I did two years ago, where I read for the attorney general that's that was really the core of that. I was just so fed up with the situation and decided I would throw myself in there, but that's not the only example in my life. I mean, I had a situation when I was gosh i can 't even remember it's sort of a formative, and, and I was so young when I was uh I was like 10 years old, eight or 10 years old. And I was playing with a bunch of kids in the neighborhood and we were riding bicycles around. I had to be older than that. I had to be about 12 because I remember my mother didn't let me ride the bike on the street until I was 12. And so we rode bikes uptown and I I grew up in this tiny little town, about 2,000 people. So it was me and uh, probably four or five neighborhood boys, uh, some of whom were a little bit older. And we rode bikes uptown. And it's so, only you know it's only about a mile. And we went we went uptown and we went into the hardware store. And I always loved the hardware store, kind of like, you know, walking around seeing all the stuff. It was kind of silly. But even today I enjoy going in the hardware store. So I was doing the same thing then. And then we we're there for a while and then everybody says, okay, let's leave. And so we we ride our bikes back home and we get back home. We go up in the treehouse and um, all these other guys start pulling tools and things out of their pockets that they had lifted in the hardware store and I was just flabbergasted. I I didn't know what to do and I was embarrassed and I felt implicated. And I just said, guys, this isn't going to work. We're taking all this shit back. And they looked at me like I was from Mars and I said, I'm not kidding. We're taking it back and we're doing it right now. And, uh, and we did. And, uh, I just, that's kind of been an animating principle for me. I just, I just, I'm not going to be in a situation. I mean, I'm not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination, but I just, I, I, that has animated me my whole career being brutally. Now I don't mean to say I'm fully capable of telling a white lie and being, you know, kind and all, at least I think I am being kind and trying to be thoughtful. And, 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 uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be untruthful. And that is actually something that in the practice of law, you know, lawyers have a reputation maybe for being not so truthful. And and in my experience, that's generally not the case. But in my own career, it's almost been a fetish. And I've actually been in court and I I can remember one argument in particular is in front of a federal judge down in Charleston. And I made this, you know, impassioned argument through this this and this and this and this. And and then the other side stood up and said, Mr. Herlong just completely said that wrong. Dah, dah, dah. And they said this and this and this. And I was like, and I stood up and I said, well, she's right. She's absolutely right. I misspoke. I'm sorry, Your Honor. This is correct. And it is just important for me, for the judge to know that if words came out of my mouth, they were true. They were absolutely true. They weren't kind of true. They weren't sort of halfway. You know what I mean? True. They were right down the middle of the road. True. So, if I had to say a guiding principle, it's that, and 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 you know the accompanying integrity that goes with it.
0: Hmm. If you were to think about an unusual habit or something that to someone outside might seem a little absurd, um, thing that that you that you love, um, what would that be?
1: <laughs> mm.
0: Gosh,
1: I don't know actually. Uh, uh what would be a habit or something like that? I, I think I'm probably pretty predictable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm probably not that unusual. Uh I guess uh, uh my, I might seem pretty goofy and crazy the way I I'm rather I'm rather uh immature and childish with my grandchildren, I don't mind embarrassing them, just like I didn't mind embarrassing my own children, you know, dancing crazy or or doing nutty things. And I guess it's fair to say most men don't do that, uh, or not willing to uh, look stupid or look embarrassing. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that qualifies. I don't know.
0: <laughs> so let me, let me offer an observation that, that I've been really curious about. I think your appetite for intellectual curiosity is certainly not, not typical, and so if you were to think back to what drives you to, to learn and stay intellectually engaged in the world, um, or so what's what that fills, I've always sort of wondered.
1: Well, I I, I guess that's probably true. Um, you know, I just I just know myself. Uh, and, and you know clearly not everybody. My friends, me and my friends think I'm insane for doing this <laughs> MBA program, and they are correct, but not for that reason. Um, but it, you're right. I mean, I'm I'm a sort of a voracious reader. I you know I'm, I love to read stuff. And one thing I love about the program is you read stuff, but you also go beyond just reading in it. You probably know just reading this or that is, it's kind of hard to really. It's so superficial, such a surface exposure to a given idea or something so so i do like to learn things um and i have a i have a mentality and this actually probably is i'm not entirely sure this is true but it's my little uh fantasy that it's that it relates to having grown up on a farm Uh, and my father was a farmer and he was a really bright guy and he um but he, you know, he went to college, which was unusual for farmers, and um, he studied agronomy and animal husbandry and things like that. And um, and he sort of had the attitude, and a lot of farmers, I think, had this approach that they feel like they can do anything. They they sort of have to be so self-sufficient, and that has sort of uh, been a part of my life. I, I saw my father do that. And he had a bad accident when I was young, so I sort of had to step in and be his hands um, and so he, he couldn't, he had a, he had a fall, which was in the, the physical effect was kind of like having a stroke where he couldn't use his right side very well. Um, and so when we did things like when I was, I was 13 or 14, um, uh, well, maybe about 12, I can't remember exactly, but daddy lost the farm after that fall and then he, he farmed some land that his father had, had left him. And we had to get an old tractor. Daddy bought an old tractor, and it was the disaster. And we literally had to take it apart and rebuild it. But he couldn't do it, so he has to use me as his hands to do it. And the consequence of that was this, this concept, this feeling that that there's really nothing that if I put my mind to it, I couldn't do. You know, but I need to learn how to do it. So it's taking things apart and putting them back together you know, whatever kind of thing it might be, including, you know, equations when you're in college and trying to learn physics or whatever. It's like, I, I can learn this it might not be easy, but I can learn this. And the the consequence of that is a feeling throughout my life that there's really nothing that if, you know, if there's a reason to learn it, or if I can get excited enough about it, I can dig into it and I can learn it. And that'll in in, in the end be its own reward there might be a, you know, there might be an objective for it. I might need to know this for this lawsuit or this thing or whatnot. But sometimes it's just the the learning is its own reward. It's its own pleasure. And I would say that's largely the case with this MBA program. There may be respects in which it, which it, there are specific payoffs to things because I'm constantly looking and, and trying to help my wife's company. And as you probably know, I'm interested in doing board of director work, independent director work, because I've seen some people do that with great and add great value to boards. Uh, and that's something I think I might like to do, but what I've learned in this course and in this, this whole two year period, is just so, you know, it has enriched my knowledge of business in so many ways. I, one of my early takeaways was, and this again, is going to sound kind of stupid and maybe even a little, Insulting, but as a lawyer coming into the MBA program, I was kind of like, eh, MBA, yeah, you know, it's not a really serious degree, whatever. Um, and <laughs> I learned pretty rapidly that that was a very, uh, stupid idea. And there's an awful lot of depth and scholarship and knowledge and insight and wisdom in a lot of the things that we've been learning. So I've I really enjoyed it. You know, I might be. Might be the older guy in the class, but I've enjoyed the heck out of it, and that's just the academic part of it. You know, not even, not even looking at the, uh, all the all the friends I've made in the class, and including yourself and so many others, and you know all the all the fun we've had down in Coral Gables and wherever we've been. So it's been a wonderful experience.
0: Yeah. You mentioned putting, you know, putting your mind to anything and being able to 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 learn it. In times when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do?
1: Uh, well, the best way for me to get focused is to dig into something specific. And I've, I've gone through a couple of periods in my life. One very specific period, it was shortly after I left and started my own law firm. It was very hard. Um, and it was sort of hard for a while to put one foot in front of the other. And, um, it's, I had a lot of, I mean, I really leaned on my wife in that period. And I was very fortunate that she was very steadfast and strong. And a lot of friends helped me get through that. Um, but apart from that sort of help the the main thing for me when I've been in periods when it's been very hard to get focused very hard to bear down is to uh r- really force myself to deal with the the specifics of an issue not you know try to get down to the minutia in a thing instead of and don't let yourself be overwhelmed by the the whole of the edifice that you've got to face. Like when you take on a lawsuit, it's just so all encompassing and you just break it down and you break it down and you break it down into little and little, littler and littler and littler pieces. I've often been reminded there's a book. It was real trendy when I was young. You may have heard of it. It's called uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. You ever hear that book? Yep. 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 Well, there's a piece in it where he talks about, and i I wonder if this is really true, if I'm remembering this even remotely correctly. I probably ought to go back and reread the book. But there's a part where he talks about a young, uh, a writing assignment, I think. Uh, and maybe he had been a teacher in the pier. I can't remember. But anyway, the kids are sent outside to write about something in the environment. And there's this young woman and she just, she's got total writer's block and she can't write about anything. So he's, she's like looking at the front of the building and it's just overwhelming. She can't write about, She, she just can't come up with anything to say. And he says, well, just look at the left side of the building and she can't come up with anything to say. And he says, okay, well just look at the, you know, the, the, the farthest left room and she can't come up with anything to say. And he says, okay, well, just look at the farthest left window. And she can't come up with anything to say. And he keeps, you know, he keeps narrowing it down. And he finally says, look at that brick at the very top of the building on the farthest left and tell me about that brick. And it just opens the floodgates. And by breaking it down into piece after piece after piece, she, you know, she finally figures out how to start writing and, and she can't stop then. So for me, I guess that's been my way of dealing with those times when I've been sort of just almost paralyzed with lack of focus or whatnot, is to hyper-focus on whatever I can find a hyper-focus on.
0: That's really interesting. As you've gone through different parts of life, what have you picked up and dropped in habits that you think of as having added a lot of value to your well-being?
1: Well, I would like to think, um, and I don't know if this is exactly responsive to the way you phrased it, but uh, I I would like to think that I've gotten better at being nice. Interesting. Uh, And the, the reason why I phrase it that way, I don't think I've ever been really I hope I haven't ever been just really mean, but I have really been so intense in at various times in my career that I think it might as well have been mean, uh, or or mean by accident, or or just you know completely so self-absorbed um, that uh, you know I'm oblivious to what a jerk I've been to other people, and I think I I would like to think that in the last. Probably 10 years, I've gotten better about that uh, and more mindful of the impact I might have on other people, uh, and particularly people that have worked with me or worked for me, because it's so easy to, well, it's easy for me to be an absolute jerk to people that work for me. Um because I, I really can, and this probably won't surprise, it might surprise you, I don't know, but I really can uh, get just, you know, we were talking about hyper-focused. And it's, I can get absolutely hyper-focused in the context of a trial or something like that. I mean, the building could fall down around, could fall down around me and I might not even notice it. And so it's really easy to, I mean, frankly, just mistreat people. And I really don't like that. I really don't like it when I see other people do it. Uh, and I, I would like to think that I have acquired a habit of, of being more thoughtful, you know, just a better person.
0: That's really interesting. I, I would not have guessed that. Um, huh. I've got a couple more questions for you. One is, if you look at your nightstand, um, what books do you have on there that that you're reading and what's gotten you interested in them?
1: well uh shoot i don't know uh let's see what am i i've always i tend to read about four or five six books at a time my wife says i'm a promiscuous reader <laughs> um and and it's not my nightstand nice anymore it's the kindle <laughs> <laughs> i'd much prefer to read a physical book but the kindle's so much easier i just read a donna leone mystery you know italian guido brunetti uh italian procedural that's always a nice diversion um let's see right here in front of me i've got the happiness advantage that uh i think that came from one of our courses um and out of the shanghai trip i think i read two or three books on china you know including henry kissinger's one i was and i think i'm going to start henry kissinger's book on diplomacy i downloaded that the other day Hmm. which is kind of interesting uh you know, things like uh, probability is one. I've got a book on probability I've read a couple of times. There's a, a finance book I'm kind of in the middle of called, I think it's called Other People's Money. I'm about halfway through a book on blockchain. I forget what that one's called, but you know, trying to wrap my head around that idea. Um, probably nothing super interesting to other people.
0: I, I don't know about other people, but any one of those is, is really interesting uh, to me. So that's really cool. If you send me a list, I can, I can put that in, in the notes at the end of uh, the conversation.
1: I will uh, see if I've got anything that's particularly interesting right here because I just finished this Donna León book. These things are fun.
0: Please.
1: Um, let's see. Oh, I just read it not too long ago a John McWhorter book, Words on the Move. The you know, English... English uh language sort of a philology book and there's a um book on genetics that I just finished, a brief history of everyone who ever lived. That's kinda interesting. So there's a bunch of things. You know, I read pretty regularly. Fascinating. Pretty, and as my wife says, pretty promiscuously. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so w uh, we've been jamming for a while. One one question that I've been asking everyone as um as we wrap up is there's a lot going on in the world right now uh, that seems very uncertain and and grim. And if you were to step back and think about the world in three or five years from now, uh, and what you know about the things that we're doing in general, what makes you most hopeful uh, about the state of humanity
1: three, five years from now? Well, I, I, I appreciate that question. And, and, uh, I actually am plenty hopeful. Uh, you know, we're in a, we're in a difficult situation right now. And the, the virus is, is obviously it's a very serious thing. And unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die and there's going to be a lot of misery. Uh, and then there's going to be all kinds of economic misery from people losing their jobs and all these sorts of things. Um, But I'm hopeful that it might sort of focus us all, you know, be a little trite, focus us all on what really matters, focus our country perhaps on on something that I really strongly believe, and that is that leadership matters. Who you have in power, and I don't just mean the presidency, certainly that matters, but I mean at every level. I remember my sister uh, lives in New Orleans and she was not very political. And then Katrina came and, you know, just knocked New Orleans for a loop. And then they all realized that this mayor they had down there, this guy Ray Nagin, was just utterly incompetent. And all these, you know, they had all these, I forget what they call them, political bodies that ran all the levies and the whatevers. And they were all just complete patronage. There was all this incompetence. And people suddenly realize that it mattered to have competent people, non-corrupt people running all these things. And I hope that our country, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican or whatever, there are competent people in every corner. And that should be your prime, I think, the primary, or at least your initial first cut. If a guy's not able, or a woman or whatever, is not able to take on the job at the magnitude that it needs to be dealt with, they shouldn't even be in consideration. Now, you can't stop people from running in this world, but I hope that our country becomes a lot more discerning about how we choose as our leaders. So this sort of the first point. And beyond that, I think it's a society it makes us realize, or hopefully makes us realize, what's important and what isn't. And I, I was saying to Joan, my, I was saying to my wife the other day that in terms of crises, existential crises, the coronavirus is pretty serious. But it could be so much more serious. I mean, imagine if something as serious as the Spanish flu were, were what we were talking about today. Or you could imagine, you could imagine any number of of disaster. You could imagine a war, a nuclear war, I- any kind of crises. So if we're going to have a crisis to focus the mind, and this is really struggling to find a, uh, uh, you know a donut around the hole, but if we're going to have a crisis, the focus, the mind, this one might do the job and might do it in a way that at the end of it all, in fact, I think it will do it in a way that at the end of it all, we will be a stronger people. We will be a better people as a result of it. At least that's my hope.
0: On that note, thank you for sharing.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you, Akshay. This is great of you to do this. Uh, I I, I almost wish you had done it at the beginning of the class so we could all (laughs) heard all this about each other, uh, you know, on the front end of this wonderful experience journey journey that we've all been on because it has been a journey. It's really interesting. We're all going to miss each other and we're going to have this uh, meandering conclusion to our two years together.